Hello, America. I'm Robert Reese, and welcome to the CEO Show. We're here today with Julie Caperton. How are you, Julie? I'm great, Robert. It's great to see you. A pleasure to see you again. And Julie is the head of the private bank at Wells Fargo. So let's talk about what differentiates you. There's over 10,000 banks and financial institutions in America. Obviously, Wells Fargo has a storied history. But talk about today. What is different about the Wells Fargo private bank? What is special about the private bank at Wells Fargo is two things. One is that we truly have full platform capabilities. We're very fortunate in that we're one of a very small number of financial institutions that have full platform capabilities across a commercial bank, an investment bank, as well as a wealth business. And so we really can provide that holistic advice to our clients and look at them across their business and their personal life. So the full platform capabilities is one differentiator. And then the other one really is our people. You know, I believe that products become more and more commoditized over time. And even if you come up with a really innovative product, most of the bulge bracket firms can replicate it in a relatively quick period of time. So the insight that is delivered and that specialized advice that is based on a really deep understanding of our clients' goals and our clients' personal balance sheets, that's really what makes us special. And Wells Fargo has been to a certain degree the private bank for CEOs, and you're working with many, many CEOs. Talk about your model for CEOs and your philosophy. Whether it be for public um, CEOs who really carry with them their own special uh, concerns and interests on stock concentrations, or whether it be with private um, company CEOs, given our strength across middle market commercial banking middle market investment banking, as well as um, investment banking in the public sector, we really have that full platform capabilities and the ability to look across and really look at a CEO, both in terms of what they need for their company and what they need for their personal um, financial strength and their family legacy. Great example, I was actually at an event last week that had about 100 CEOs of privately held companies. And I was meeting with with different people and, and what really resonates with them is our ability to look at their company and look at the profile of their company and whether that be just a dividending strategy or potentially, you know, a more significant liquidity event, we're able to look at that and factor that in when we look at their personal balance sheet and and financial statements so that we really can look at that holistic picture. I find that CEOs are incredibly busy people. And the reality is their personal balance sheet often falls to the bottom of the to-do list. And there's nothing more important than the legacy that they'll leave for their families and for the philanthropies that they want to sponsor. And so my big encouragement for all CEOs really is to spend as much time thinking about the strategy and goals that you have for yourself personally as you do for your company and spend as much time thinking about your personal balance sheet as you do your company's balance sheet and really making sure that you've surrounded yourself with the right advisors to make those decisions. And it really sounds like it boils down to three things of investments, lending, and then the philanthropies, because CEOs are so frequently involved in giving back in philanthropies. Absolutely. And one of the things I'm proudest of is that we've consistently been ranked 
you know, the strongest private bank in the philanthropy space. We spend a lot of time with our clients talking about philanthropy and how to move from an environment where you're responsive. So you're just responding by writing checks to different people who ask you um, to sponsor a, a different event or, or um, a charitable institution. Moving from that to really thinking about what is the legacy you want to create? What's a consistent theme in your philanthropy? What's something that you have a passion for? And how do you really make sure that you're making an impact on that passion project as opposed to just um, being responsive? And one other thing I read recently was in LinkedIn, it had Wells Fargo. They were like the top 50 companies that people can build a career at. And you're actually number two. Exactly. Again, something that we're incredibly proud of and really talks about, you know, to me, it speaks to the entrepreneurial spirit um, at Wells Fargo, um, the ability to, to really take advantage of all of the products and services and breadth of Wells Fargo, but make it your own and really take that and help you build your own career path by, by factoring in and taking advantage of all those different things, but really making it your own and, and really creating that client-centric and an employee-centric environment where, where you can serve clients and, and grow your business. This is Robert Brees on The CEO Show, where we interview the CEOs who have reinvented the fabric of America. We're here today with Julie Caperton, who is the head of the private bank at Wells Fargo. And now I want to shift to something a little more personal. You were involved with something um, that was really historic back in 2008. And not many people know, because at the time you were an, you know, a middle manager in investment banking, but talk behind the scenes, the story people really don't know. And I know, Julie, that you're very humble, but tell the real story of what happened with Wachovia. So I um, ended up in a very interesting intersection at Wachovia. I had been a lawyer for a number of years, a lawyer who concentrated on structured products in the mortgage space and CDOs and derivatives. And I moved into a role where I was running you know, really the workout team for structured products, right leading into the financial crisis. So I was responsible for bankruptcies and failed transactions and really working them out in order to maximize the recovery for the firm and for, for any other investors um, in the transactions. And, and really, you know, when you think about structured products, the mortgage-backed world, the CDOs and CLOs, and really even CMBS um, leading into that environment, that was kind of the center of the bullseye for a lot of the issues, not only that Wachovia had, but other firms as well. And so really at the tail end of Wachovia, I was, you know, uh, call it the tip of the spear for the due diligence efforts for all of the different potential acquisition partners that we were working with over the series of weekends. So really, you know, we would work uh, during the course of the week to make sure that we were still able to fund ourselves and able to, you know, serve clients and, and just run the business. And then starting at the close on every Friday, we would pair off with, with a potential acquisition partner and spend the weekend, you know, trying to get ourselves sold. And that, that continued for about five weekends until, you know, the infamous weekend where it was going to be Wells, it was going to be City, then it was going to be, you know, City that gets announced. And, and really just a couple days later, um, Wells uh, came back in and uh, delivered a more powerful um, bid that was more palatable, really, not only to, to the, the Wachovia um, shareholders, but also to the FDIC. 
And what lessons do you have on integrating the cultures? Really large company integrations are incredibly difficult, but I think if you treat it with a level of respect um, and understanding for uh, the other the other cultures that are coming together, that's really the the secret sauce. Open communication, candor, authenticity, um, and respect, and and you really can can get through just about anything if you approach it in that way. What is your vision for the private bank at Wells Fargo? My vision is to create the most client-centric environment that we could possibly create. One of the challenges in the wealth industry is that a lot of firms have um, a multi-channel approach, which we do too. And a multi-channel approach is great because that means that clients can be served in a variety of different ways and they can be served in whatever way resonates with them. And advisors can serve clients in a variety of ways and whatever resonates with them. However, it's really important to not let those organizational lines impact the client experience or the client's ability to access products and services. So one of the things that I have an absolute passion about is to make sure that you're looking through to the client and understanding that client's complexity, size and scale of their relationship and their needs, and then meeting that client where they are right alongside their advisor with all the products and services that they need in order to reach, achieve their financial goals and really create that legacy for themselves and their family. So thank you. And Julie, that's really a part of history of America and the world. And we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to hear another personal side, which is a transformative moment that you had that led you to your career. So back in a few, we're going to take a commercial break now. Hi, this is Robert Reese back on The CEO Show, and we're here with Julie Caperton, who is the head of the private bank at Wells Fargo. Good to have you back on the show, Julie. It's wonderful to be here. And Julie just told a story that not many people know behind the scenes, because she was one of the key people involved with Wachovia Wells Fargo Alliance. And now I want to ask you about another moment you had in your life. What was a transformative moment you had that really shaped who you are and helped lead you in the career you have? I had actually a major house fire in my family. At the time, my children were still quite young and we were, you know, asleep in our beds and had a fire. We actually had another family visiting with us and we, you know, ran out of our house with the clothes on our backs and not much else. And then, you know, proceeded to stand and watch our house burn for a number of of hours and really, you know, had to go back and not only rebuild our house, but purchase literally every item that we ever had. We lost um, nearly everything. And I think, you know, really it taught me a couple of different things coming out of that. One is is just like the perseverance and what you can actually accomplish when you put your mind to it. You know, I, I really, I needed to make sure that my family was stable and my, my children were okay and, and really just like had a huge amount of, of work to do between me and my husband, you know, rebuilding that. But right before that happened, I had been just given a pretty significant promotion and it had already been announced. And so, you know, the company really couldn't go back and say, 
let's hit the pause button and give you a little more time in order to work through the personal side. I, I kind of had to do both at the same time. Um, there really just wasn't an option. And it really, it helps you prioritize. It helps you think about what's most important. Um, it helps you balance and juggle a lot. And so, you know, as, as difficult as that time frame was, you know, I think I gained tremendous perspective. And, and frankly, my children gained incredible perspective about what's important in life you know, of anything that we could get back, you know, family photos and some of the things like that would, would be way more important than, you know, game consoles or, or clothes or, or fancy shoes. It's just the perspective gained. My gosh, I, I can't even imagine what it's like standing out there and watching that at your house. And then you're, you're rushing to get your family. It, when I think back on it, it's almost like it didn't happen to me. Like it, it almost feels like I, you know, I, I, that can't have happened, but it did. So when people go through intense moments, it usually shapes their character and shapes their leadership. You told how it shaped your, your character a little bit. How has it shaped your leadership? It gave me an added lens of what I would call, you know, no-nonsense authenticity. That perspective that I have about what's important it carries over into the workplace. And, and what's really important in the workplace is strong communication, strong relationships, and authenticity. As a leader and as a colleague, I find that I, I find it very easy to just be straightforward and just to say, I'm not seeing that in exactly the same way that you are. Let's talk that through. Because you know, life is short and um, understanding other people's priorities and, and just moving through issues, you're so much better served just tackling things head on. I always tell people who are new managers, if you think you might be doing someone a kindness by not addressing something or tackling something head on, but the reality is you're just making it harder. Because if you bring it up in the third conversation, as opposed to the first, the person will, will kind of be thinking, well, has she always been thinking that? Why didn't she ever mention that before? It's so much easier to address any sort of difference um, out of the gate and just make it clear that you have a different perspective and you'd like to hear their perspective and, and talk that through. It's tremendous what you're saying. And there's definitely such a leadership value that people want a leader like that. But also I'm thinking as being like the, the, um, the private bank for CEOs, Look, I know more CEOs than the average bear. I've interviewed a thousand of the top CEOs. CEOs want that. They hate when you're not direct with them. They want to be hit over the head. So they must love all the time when you're so direct with them. Absolutely. You know, again, very busy people. They want you to be concise and to the point and just tell it like it is. And I'm thinking that maybe something put from this whole experience with the house burning down, something visceral about paying it forward. And talk about how that ties into your life in terms of paying it forward? You know, I think that that really is rooted um, even further back in in my, you know, beginning. I was the first person um, in my entire family to um, to go to a four-year college and, and go to graduate school. And that was really hard. Um, I felt like many times I was trying to find my own way. And then, you know, really going into the financial industry and investment banking for the majority of my career, I was, I was the only woman. And so I found myself oftentimes having a harder time because I was trying to figure things out for myself. 
And so one of my personal philosophies now is really to pay that forward um, and to look for opportunities where I can help people who maybe um, are the first person in their family to go to college and they don't understand the lay of the land. They don't even know how to go about selecting classes or planning for a major. Um, and then similarly, in the workplace, when I see people, um, women or minorities, who maybe feel like they don't have the same network or the same ability to create that network, I really try to go out of my way to make myself available to people. And whether that be, you know, um, volunteering my time and interviewing candidates for scholarships that are first time college students, you know, my husband and I, um, you know, dedicating our own um, personal funds um, to funding um, scholarship um, opportunities or, you know, really just uh, interviewing and, and bringing interns on, on board and spending a lot of time with them, making sure that, that they have um, a level playing field and have the ability to, to succeed. Are there any specific piece of advice you have for women? As you, you and I have spoken before, uh, one of the most important things to me is to get more women CEOs. And you work with CEOs all the time. Any advice? One thing I would say, and this is particularly to women in the middle part of their career, is, is don't give up. There are ways to create balance. If you're really good, your boss and your boss's boss and everyone that surrounds you desperately wants you to stay in the workforce. And so before you conclude that there's not a way to go forward and you know have it all, there's not a way to have it all. You can't, you have to always make trade-offs, but work with the people around you and try to find a way to create that balance while not giving up your career. Um, that, that's one piece of advice. Um, and then the other is, is just to really own your own space. Early on in my career, I found all too often I would be sitting in a room and people would be discussing an issue and I would be sitting there thinking, well, isn't the answer to do this? But like, clearly if I've come up with that, that, that can't be the answer. It can't be that easy or else someone else, someone more senior, someone more experienced would have come up with that answer. And then sure enough, you know, I did have the answer. It's just that I was bringing a different perspective to it. So, you know, I really encourage people to, to kind of own their space. If you have an idea, um, feel comfortable floating it. Not every idea is going to be the right idea, but you're there for a reason. And, um, and, and you, should, you should own that and feel confident in it. And there you have it. Julie, a real pleasure having you on the CEO show. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Robert. It's great to see you again. And everyone, think about this. If you want to deal with CEOs or even just be a great leader, it's all about what Julie Caperton has told us. No nonsense authenticity. <laughs> <laughs> 